When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. Question. What is Hong Kong superstar and one of the greatest actors ever, Tony Leung, doing in Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings? Answer. Doing what he always does, which is be amazing. Yeah, that checks out. This week, we've got our top five questions, and I guess some answers too, about the fall movie season. Plus, reviews of Marvel's Shang-Chi, which opens this weekend, and the new Candyman. That and more. Candyman. Candyman. Let's just stop there, Adam. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. You know, the funny part about that joke we just did in the open is that I've already told my wife, Sarah, that Candyman has a tough hill to climb with me even before I go into the theater, which is that I don't buy for a second that anyone would look into the mirror and say that name five times if they were aware of that myth. You couldn't pay me enough money to do it right now, Josh, and I'm a sane, rational person living in the real world. You'd be surprised how many people are very eager to do that, Adam. (laughs) Wait wait till you see the film. (laughs) Okay, well, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on that. And we are going to get to our top five questions of the fall movie season. Spoiler alert, I'm assuming your number one is, will Daniel Craig's fifth outing as Bond allow him to steal the title of best Bond from Roger Moore? <laughs> He's got some work to do. I'll tell you that, Adam. <laughs> Roger Moore. <laughs> I suppose I hate to bring up something here on the show that only our film spotting family members on Patreon had a chance to listen to, but last week on our August bonus show, we went very long on the 1977 Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. We did, and we we can't even blame it on Chris Klemek, who joined us for the first Bond installment. You know, it wasn't his fault that the running time bumped up so long. It was was solely ours and, and, honestly, the magic of Roger Moore. Yeah, you did claim during the conversation that Roger Moore, based on The Spy Who Loved Me anyway, was... The best Bond. Well, let's say... Bold statement, Josh. Let's say I'm floating that theory. I believe in our conversation. (laughs) I was going to proclaim once we get through revisiting these Bonds over the course of these bonus episodes. Mm. So, you know, I'm going to give Dalton a chance. Going to give him a shot. But uh, yeah, it's going to be tough for someone to unseat more at this point. Later, Josh will share his takes on not only Candyman, but Marvel's Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings opening this weekend. But we are going to get things going with our fall movie preview. We do it as we have done for a few years now here on Film Spotting. Our previews come in the form of questions about the movie season. And Josh, a couple you won't be hearing from me 
this top five. I won't ask about Paul Thomas Anderson's soggy bottom as I did during our 2021 movie preview, the overall movie preview back in January. My question was simply soggy bottom. That's it. That's the question. And not only would I not repeat that, but it comes out after our fall movie deadline post Thanksgiving closer to Christmas. I also asked about the tragedy of Macbeth. My number two question of the movie year, the new one directed by a cone brother, just one probably could have made the cut because even though it doesn't have a theatrical release date yet, it is playing the New York film festival in September. And I'll give you one question that I suppose will have an answer, an early honorable mention, if you will, Will Lin-Manuel Miranda be mentioned for the 17th consecutive film <laughs> spotting preview? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's what I asked early on. We should maybe do a check-in, Adam, at the very beginning of the year. I asked what our capacity as a nation was for exactly. Lin-Manuel Miranda. How are you doing? Do you, do you feel like after In the Heights, I think the Rita Moreno doc has come out. Are yeah. you managing or do you need a little less Lin-Manuel or are you doing okay? I'm doing I'm doing okay because I only saw In the Heights and the other ones in Canto, Vivo, the Rita Moreno doc, I haven't experienced yet. But he is directing Tick, Tick, Boom coming out November 12th in theaters, November 19th on Netflix. That is a film about Jonathan Larson and the making of Rent, one of... Lin-Manuel Miranda's favorite musicals, one of his musical icons. I love that musical as well, so I am really interested in seeing it. Andrew Garfield playing the lead role there. Low-hanging fruit for this top five in terms of questions would have been something about musicals because not only do we have Tick, Tick, Boom, we've got Dear Evan Hansen, we've got Cyrano, and of course, again, closer to Christmas, we have Spielberg's West Side Story. Did you pick any of that low-hanging fruit? Nope. Went in a different direction for my questions. Uh, so I'll, I'll jump right in here. And sometimes these previews, you become aware of movies you'd never heard of before, Adam. And mm -hmm. that was the case with my number five. Uh, but this was an intriguing film when I did discover it. The question is, will Finch be more Wally or Turner and Hooch? Now, you'd think that an actor with the stature of Tom Hanks would be past co-starring with a dog. But apparently that's not the case. He is going to appear in Finch this fall. And here's the plot synopsis from Wikipedia. An alien inventor, the last man on Earth, builds an android to keep him and his dog company and goes on a journey across the country. So I guess, come to think of it, there's a little castaway there going on as well. Maybe, I don't know, the robot or the dog, one of them playing the part of Wilson, but what came to mind for me first was not only Pixar's Wally, -E, obviously, with the robot and the post-apocalyptic setting, but yes, I remembered Hank's own Turner and Hooch. That was a 1989 comedy where he played a detective who adopts a dog to help him investigate a crime or something like that. I don't know, Adam, because I was 89 just entering my cinephile snob phase, you know, early yeah. years of high school. So yeah, I, like I, do the right thing or yeah. Get out of here. I don't have time for Turner and Hooch, so I, I skipped it. Uh, do you have any memories of it by chance, either back then or since? Okay. <laughs> You're going to regret opening the door, but very quickly, I have to tell you that this movie is one I have a little backstory with, and it's just that I went to college not too many years after Turner and Hooch came out in 89, and I made the mistake one day of telling my group of friends, the guys I was always hanging out with, one of my roommates, and that crew that Turner and Hooch sold out at my small Iowa hometown movie theater 
for like a week straight. And mm. I didn't even see it there. I just remember my boss because I eventually worked at that theater. I remember her telling me that once and I thought it was harmless. And I told them that. And not only did they decide that obviously everyone I grew up with was just a bunch of hicks who had no taste in movies, but that Turner and Hooch must be my favorite film of all time. <laughs> I love like it. if you found these guys today <laughs> and mentioned Turner and Hooch, they would instantly start giving me grief. And the irony is I truly have never seen it. And of course I love Tom Hanks as much as the next guy. That is fantastic. I, I love hearing that. I, I love that you c- couldn't score a ticket. For, for Turner and Hooch back in 89 <laughs> in small town Iowa. <laughs> they That's were right. They were scalping them outside the theater. They might as well have been. It was <laughs> apparently that big of a hit, Josh. All right. Well, I, I think I'd still rather watch Finch than Turner and Hooch. Uh, Finch is coming out. It's going to be available on Apple TV, actually. I think this is part of um, the deal Hanks has with Apple TV+. Plus. It'll be there on November 5. All right. My number five is also a movie I hadn't heard of until I started doing my research And it's, will language lessons not make me regret watching a, quote, pandemic movie, unquote? In fairness, I did slightly recommend Malcolm and Marie when we reviewed it here on the show. And I do still really want to catch up with Zoe Lister-Jones, how it ends now that it's on demand. Movies that were clearly made under COVID restrictions and or dealt with the new reality either directly or indirectly. Otherwise, though, Josh, I have intentionally avoided, I mean, almost run out of the room anytime a clip came on or a trailer came on for any TV show or movie on a screen that might involve people in lockdown talking to other people over screens. Did it all just feel too soon? I guess so. I really could not care less about any of these films. And now I read about and watch the trailer for Language Lessons, which stars Mark Duplass as Adam. It's a Duplass Brothers production. He co-wrote it with Natalie Morales, who also co-stars in the movie and is an actress who has also made one other feature, Plan B, which is another movie I need to catch up with. That came out in May of this year. And I'll give you a little bit of the plot synopsis. When Adam's husband surprises him with weekly Spanish lessons, he's unsure about where or how this new element will fit into his already structured life. But when tragedy strikes, his Spanish teacher, Carino, becomes a lifeline he didn't know he needed. Who are you again? I'm your Spanish teacher. So I have to speak Spanish for one day. Well, I actually bought the, uh, the, the hundred lesson package. Will, did you buy me a hundred Spanish lessons? Yeah. Why? Because you wanted to learn Spanish, dummy. Oh. Buenos dias, Adam. Yo no sé tu nombre. Oh. Todo el mundo me dice cariño. Como in, in Dirty Dancing, how everybody just calls baby, baby. Ah. This is from IndieWire's fall movie preview, Kate Erblan, the writer. She says, bittersweet, honest, and at times darkly funny, Language Lessons is a disarmingly moving exploration of platonic love. You know that I have long been a fan of Mark Duplass as an actor, and I like the Duplass Brothers film, so that has me intrigued. But something else Erblan said in her write-up caught my eye. She said that the film's clever use of the format is hardly its most refreshing element. Told any way, the heart of language lessons would be moving and well worth exploring. Built on seemingly familiar tropes, Morales' film resists the usual expectations of what might happen when two strangers bond intensely and under cute-sounding constraints. So it seems like a fun movie, 
but probably going to be a little bit heavy at times, but with a lot of humor. And that notion of intense bonding with a stranger is really fascinating. And I think about the way a screen, and when you see the trailer, you see them communicating exclusively over Zoom with each other. That screen can allow for maybe just enough distance that it actually puts you in a place where you become almost like a character, a version of yourself that perhaps rather than being less real or more artificial and distant, you actually are more vulnerable. You actually feel like maybe you can open up more. So I'm really eager to see language lessons, despite, again, that aversion to COVID movies. And we'll have our chance soon, September 10th, it opens in limited release. Yeah, Morales, Natalie Morales, as a as an actor, has always been one of those faces you're happy to see on screen uh, whenever she pops up. I think I especially remember her uh, had a recurring role in Parks and Rec for for a while there. So it'll be interesting to see what she does as a director with two films. There must have been some sort of pandemic related delay that Plan B also got a 2021 release. But yeah, two films from her this year. That's exciting. My number four question. Will The Harder They Fall do right by one of the best casts of the fall? Let me start by reading this cast list. You've got Regina King, Idris Elba, Lakeith Stanfield, Zazie Beetz, who I don't know if I mentioned when I uh, gave a positive review to Nine Days um, a show or two ago, but she's really good there. Jonathan Majors, who we both loved in Last Black Man in San Francisco. And if that's not enough, oh yeah, Delroy Lindo. So at this point, almost doesn't really matter what the movie is about, but here is the plot. When an outlaw discovers his enemy is being released from prison, he reunites his gang to seek revenge. I know who you are. The angel who hunts down those who trespass against him with no mercy. So this is a Western set post-Civil War, and Majors appears to be playing, at least this is the character name as well, a variation on Nat Love, who was a formerly enslaved cowboy who became this black folk hero. The co-writer and the director I'm unfamiliar with, James Samuel, previously made another Western, actually, 2013's They Die by Dawn. Samuel's got a dream of a cast here. I'm really eager to see what he does with them. And this one will be coming in early November. It'll be in theaters and also on Netflix, November 3 for The Harder They Fall. Yeah, one I'm really excited about as well. And you said it, the cast. That's all I needed to see those first three or four names. And I was in. Now, conveniently, we're going to keep up the synergy here, Josh. My number four is also a Western. And the question is, how much more potent will the power of the dog be after we've completed our Jane Campion overview? One of the reasons I'm eager for this overview to start, this would be our second one. If you're new to the show last year, 2020, during the pandemic, when we were trying to come up with new movies to discuss, we decided to revisit the work of Christopher Nolan. And that was a case where I had seen all of the films except for his debut following. With Jane Campion, it's more like a marathon because they're mostly blind spots. As you know, much to your chagrin, I have seen The Piano and don't love it the way mm. that you do or mm. most of the world does. I remember seeing In the Cut, and I'll just say that 
I know there are a lot of people out there who think it's really, really underrated. And they might be right, but it would definitely take a revisit for me to have that opinion. Now, Bright Star is the other one I've seen, and I like that one quite a bit, but I can't speak about Campion and her work and what defines it with any clarity or authority whatsoever. So I don't really even know what to expect from The Power of the Dog, at least as we sit here beginning the fall. I'll give you the plot synopsis. This is a nice, simple one. Two brothers and co-owners of a Montana ranch duel after one of them gets married. Now, I love how sometimes you go to different sites and those plot summaries are different. Here's Wikipedia's, which is so much more sinister. In early 20th century Montana, a sadistic ranch owner launches a campaign against a young widow when she unexpectedly marries his brother and comes to live on the ranch. I mean, that sounds more campion. Yeah, it probably does. I mean, just based on what I do know about her work and the sadistic ranch owner here is the Batch, Benedict Cumberbatch. His brother seems to be played by Jesse Plemons. The woman who divides them is Plemons' real life wife, Kirsten Dunst. The cast also has Thomas and McKenzie, who, of course, is great. Keith Carradine, Francis Conroy, Cody Smith McPhee is in it, I think, playing the son of Dunt's widow, who does eventually marry Plemons. Here's Kate Erbland again in IndieWire. Campion's film has already been hailed as being filled with unexpected cadences and rhythms, with Campion's daring matched every step of the way by her extraordinary, fully immersed cast. So I want to experience that daring. I want to experience those cadences and rhythms. And when Kate says unexpected, I'm sure she means more in comparison to other films, maybe even other Westerns, and not necessarily unexpected as compared to other Campion films. But we'll see. Again, that's something I really don't have much of a frame of reference for at all. The trailer is very mysterious. I think you see Plemons once in the whole thing. Briefly, despite the fact that it seems based on those two summaries that he plays a pretty large role, it also suggests some intimacy or an attempt at intimacy between Cumberbatch and the son character played by McPhee. So it's one of those trailers that's a little bit hard to grasp, which also seems appropriate based on what I know about Campion and her films. But the cinematography is really striking, taking full advantage of the Western setting and the framing that a lot of filmmakers use to great effect through windows and through doors. As you look at that landscape and you see that juxtaposition of the the dark lighting indoors with that bright sun drenched land and the the mountains and the valleys out in Montana. Ari Wegner is the DP on this film. She shot Lady Macbeth. Very good Florence Pugh film, the first movie that I think we both saw her in. Also was the DP on The True History of the Kelly Gang, which is a movie I saw last year and didn't go for, but it has a very distinct look. And then she also shot Zola from this year, which, if I'm not mistaken, you were not only positive on, you're really positive, aren't you, Jack? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Top five of the year so far. At that's the what I thought. Yep. So that's Ari Wegner. And here's another crew member that... If I haven't already sold you, and I know, Josh, you're already sold on Campion, but how about music by Johnny Greenwood? Oh, wow. Yeah, I can't wait to see this. I can't wait to do this overview. And, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident if you don't come all the way around on the piano, there will be a shift. <laughs> um, and, and that'll probably make me happy enough. But these are... these are challenging movies. These are difficult movies. This is going to be... You know, Nolan is challenging 
but in a completely different way. And as you said, as revisits of films we watched probably each multiple times, you know, you're kind of coming in armed pretty well, even as mm-hmm. uh, as someone who has seen uh, Campion stuff. I think what that reference to unexpected means is that you really have no idea where she's going to take a movie narratively mm-hmm. in terms of the imagery. There is always that potential to, to destabilize you even on repeat viewings. Um, so, so I'm really excited to get, to get this one going here probably in a couple of weeks, right? We'll, we'll yeah. get it started. We are planning to launch that overview soon and you can see the power of the dog in theaters, select cities, November 17th. So just made our deadline there. And then it does come to Netflix on December 1st. All right. My third question, will Top Gun Maverick deliver justice for Iceman, Adam? (laughs) Oh, no. Remember? I'm sure you haven't forgotten when we had our live (laughs) Top Gun watch party with film spotting family members. That was for um, the folks on Patreon a while back. You and I had fun debating whose ethos wins out in that landmark film. Was it the American individualism of Tom Cruise's Maverick or was it the communal, dare I say, socialist teamwork of Val mm-hmm. Kilmer's yeah. Iceman? Well, we're gonna we're gonna have more evidence, Adam, for this uh-huh. ongoing debate with Top Gun Maverick. I had assumed there was no way Kilmer would be a part of this. I just figured, you know, different phase of career, let's just say, Val Kilmer than Tom Cruise is in. But there he is. He's right there in the cast. Very exciting. I maybe I'll be disappointed. It's just a cameo. We'll see. We don't get Kelly McGillis, unfortunately, um, but we will also see newcomers Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Ed Harris, and Miles Teller, who hasn't been around in a while, I don't think, at least that I've seen. So interesting cast there in addition to Kilmer. Again, we'll see how big of a role it is. But as an Iceman defender, I'm definitely way more interested now that he is in the mix. Top Gun Maverick is going to open on November 19. Here's exhibit A of my case, Josh. The movie's not called Top Gun colon Iceman. Well, I didn't say that the myth hasn't endured. I mean, this is this is the time to course correct. This is what I'm uh, hoping the movie is okay. going to finally do. That brings us to my number three question of the fall movie season. And it's a variation. Some might say a more intriguing or even more accurate one on a question posed by listener Josh Youngerman. On your Larson on Film Facebook page, he asked, what does a Nicole Holof Center slash Ridley Scott collaboration look like with The Last Duel? My question, Josh, is will The Last Duel's he said, he said, she said battling POVs pay off? I don't think the the more interesting collaboration here is the one between Holof Center, who's a writer on this film, and the director, Ridley Scott. It's between the three screenwriters. And those three screenwriters are... Holofcener and the pairing of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Yes, reteaming after their Oscar win for Goodwill Hunting. And here's the thing about The Last Duel, if you haven't read much about it. It's basically a Rashomon-like approach to storytelling. So we get the same event from three different perspectives. The central story is a duel between Matt Damon's character and Adam Driver after Damon's character accuses drivers of raping his wife, played by Jodie Comer. So then we get the perspective of those three characters. So Damon wrote one of the men, Affleck wrote one of the men, and Holofcener wrote 
the woman character. And this is what Damon recently said on Entertainment Tonight. He sets up the general structure and then said, we'd be like, well, what if this happened? And then we just write different scenes. So we had all these kind of disparate scenes, and then we kind of tried to jam them together into something that looked like a movie. Well, Matt, what you just described sounds kind of terrible. Yes. But I'm fascinated by the concept, and I want to see how it actually translates to the screen and whether or not Ridley Scott is able to take what seems like maybe a mess of a script that he was handed and turns it into something great. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. We will have some sense of whether or not Ridley Scott did pull that off fairly soon. By the time most people are hearing this, I think it already will have played at the Venice Film Festival. And this one might be a little bit of a cheat then, Josh, because it is getting in under the wire of our deadline because it's playing in Venice. We actually don't know yet when it's going to come out. It could be in December but it's supposed to hit theaters here before the end of the year. Well, and what's fascinating, if you see it as more of a competition than a collaboration, of course, Hall of Center doesn't get to also have a contribution as an actor, where Damon and Affleck are not only writing these parts, then they have their hands in the actual filming, too. But of course, maybe both of them are going to are looking to play um, self-deprecating or even villainous roles. So yeah, it mm-hmm. should, be, should be a fascinating experiment. All right, we'll have a few more questions when we come back. There's still Dune to deal with. Plus, I'll share some quick thoughts on Candyman and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Stay with us. Oh, hey. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not, you are also your father. That's from the trailer for Marvel Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which comes to theaters this weekend. It's directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, the director of 2013's Very Good Short-Term 12, also 2017's The Glass Castle, and 2019's Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan. It stars Simu Liu as the title character, along with Hong Kong acting legends Michelle Yeoh and Tony Leung. Aquafina is also in the ensemble. The clip we just heard has Yo talking about the burden of legacy, something Shang-Chi, the movie, has to deal with. It's the second feature in Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe following Black Widow. Josh, you have seen Shang-Chi. How is Marvel doing with these first couple of films in the post-Endgame world? And please sprinkle the word phase into this review 
as much as you can. Okay. I can't promise I'll be able to pull that off. Uh, you know, Black Widow, I was very mildly positive on, didn't really need it at the end of the day, or it didn't, let's just say it didn't live up to what it could have been for me. But Shang-Chi has jumped up to be one of my top five favorite MCU films. This is this was a wonderful surprise. Didn't know much about the comic book itself. Didn't know much about uh, Simu Liu, who is, you know, a real find in the starring role here. He's funny. He's an incredible athlete in the fight sequences and also very compelling as a dramatic presence, too. So, so yeah, why am I so impressed by this? Well, I don't need to tell listeners who have been following our Wong Kar Wai marathon that Tony Leung is going to be a huge plus in any movie, but he gets a really good role here. This is one of the better Marvel villains. He has a lot of screen time. And of course he brings that same melancholy to a part that is a very, this is a sad villain. <laughs> it's, you know, shorthand in our house during this marathon has been for Tony Leung has been sad cop and, and he's kind of like the sad villain here. And it's, it's really effective in terms of the film. The other thing I would say why this is so good is those action scenes are excellent. And, you know, not just uh, in one way either. There are, you can clearly see a Jackie Chan influence in an early fight sequence on a careening city bus that uses everything on the set or in the bus in this case. So the seats, the poles, even the signal cord, it's kind of a, a a piece of comedy as much as it is an action scene, and it's a pure delight. But then you also get sequences in involving Tony Leung that are more in the style of uh, the wuxia tradition, something like Ashes of Time from Wong Kar Wai, or Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where it's it's a more elegant style of fighting that has a, a real psychological component to it. There are there are reasons these characters are sparring that have to do with who they are as characters and the narrative, and it's not just a fight scene for a fight scene's sake. And there are multiple, there's more than just those two. There are multiple really good fight sequences in this. I should say the fight director, the supervising stunt coordinator, and the second unit, unit director is Brad Allen, who sadly passed away just before the film's release. But should definitely get some credit along with his team for the work that's done here in terms of the stunt choreography and the fight sequences. And then the last thing, I've talked on the show, Adam, about how I found it very tired that the MCU relies on the punch plosion, this reverberating thud you get after a superhero hits someone or uses a weapon to deliver a punch plosion. And you get that here, of course, the 10 rings themselves as a weapon do that. But the movie is also kind of an examination. And there's a lovely recurring visual motif where fists are opened up, even during some of these fight sequences, to demonstrate something else and how that changes characters. It's something that's a through line that's incredibly thoughtful in the movie. It involves Tony Leung's character, even his final gesture. So yeah, all of those things made this a really strong MCU installment for me. Suffers from a few of the things they always do. The CGI takes over at the end. There's a little bit too much mythology and character backstory. But when I'm looking at this uh, in the context of all the other movies we've gotten in the franchise, it's a really good one. All right. I am in. Hope to see it this weekend. And maybe I will listen to you and see another movie that you recommend. It's Candyman, the spiritual sequel to the classic 1992 Chicago set horror film. This one also set in Chicago. Really talented cast looking at those two stars, Tayana Paris and Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. There has been 
a fair amount of divisiveness around this film, just in terms of people being really all in and thinking it's incredible or wanting to love it and finding that it disappointed. Where do you fall, Josh? Yeah, this is, boy, the range of opinion on this one is maybe the most varied, even more than Annette, I feel like, than any other film that has come out this year. It's going to be a harder sell for you, Adam, not just because of the horror, but there are clearly some some challenges and issues with the movie. I, I do like it. I'm a fan, and I'll get to what ultimately brought me over the edge. But I also recognize um, there are just some storytelling issues and it's almost like it takes on too much in terms even thematically of what it wants to be about. And the weird thing is, these are some of the same challenges that the original 92 film had. So it's almost like they weren't able to exercise those demons from the original in making this one. But, and this is a strong but, because I do recommend it, and it has to do really with the style that DaCosta and uh, the filmmaking team bring to this, because the way this film even moves is entrancing. And it starts right at the beginning where the credits, the studio logos are inverted, which is what would happen in a mirror. So there's a reference there, of course, to the part of the legend about saying his name in the mirror five times. We get this incredible shot looking up at the Chicago sky that is, I have to watch it again to know for sure. It's either moving backwards among the skyscrapers or it's being somehow slowly reversed um, they're reversing the motion, but it is the eeriest thing. And that's also a callback to the original, which had as a hallmark these really cool helicopter shots looking down on the city. So here we're looking up and we're already destabilized at, at the movie's start. And speaking of Chicago, pretty much entirely shot here really makes great use of the city and the architecture, which, of course, we're both going to appreciate. Uh, but a location like Marina City Towers, uh, which people call the corncob towers because of their strange their strange look, we get a scene there that is in one of those apartments, which are all strangely pie-shaped. The entire building is circular. And we walk down the hallways, which have this weird way of curving and just setting the sequence there and taking advantage of, of that locale is so effective. And then we get this great exterior shot that pulls away from Marina City Towers and reveals them to have sort of this honeycomb pattern, which is another reference to the legend, how the bees are involved. So there's a lot of visual inventiveness and intelligence going on here. And that includes, the last thing I want to mention quickly, is this shadow puppet motif that was actually designed by a, a Chicago outfit, Manual Cinema. And it at first begins as something in the narrative. A minor character is shown playing with shadow puppets as a boy. But then DaCosta will return to it later during exposition sequences. And we get these beautiful little like 40 sec 45 second short films of shadow puppets that is not only aesthetically enthralling, but the more I think about Candyman, this is very much about how ghost stories are told and what medium is used to tell them and how that affects the story itself. So you have something like a puppet show, you have a painting, you know, the, the main character is a painter and he's retelling the legend of Candyman on his canvases. So that distorts the legend. And then you have, I mentioned this takes on a ton, but like something like police reports. What do they say about the story? Because that is a concern of this movie as well as police violence. So there are some really intriguing through lines in this, even as it spirals out maybe further than it than it should have. But I definitely recommend it, um, especially if you did find the original film intriguing. Those towers that you mentioned, also famous in that they are from the album cover 
Yankee Hotel Foxtrot yes, by exactly. the great Chicago band Wilco. I haven't read much about this movie at all, so I did want to ask you, you mentioned its use of Chicago as a setting, as the location for this movie, and I haven't seen the original Candyman since it came out, but I remember how it used Cabrini Green as a location, and as it turns out, just a few days ago, I was having a conversation with an African-American woman who was telling me about how proud she was that she raised four sons in Cabrini Green, who all went on to be really successful. Again, she just offered that in conversation. And you think about the the lore of that location. What does Nia DaCosta do with it here? Yeah, I think that's definitely, interestingly, that's something the original film was already dealing with and not entirely successfully because it is, the original was also preying on that lore by using it as a quote-unquote haunted place, but then also giving us supporting characters like a single mother who is shown to kind of like be an example of how that lore is exaggerated and not true and that there are everyday people living here going about their everyday lives. And in a way, that's just, you know, by by setting this place up as such a terrible place, it's another way of institutionalizing racism and, and stereotypes. So that's something the first film is interested in. This one is as well, but I will say it's also considering how gentrification has come to that area. Right. Because at this point, it's present day, and the mm-hmm. characters are living where the public housing projects used to be. Yes. So that's yet, you know, I've, I've mentioned yet another theme that is kind of woven in here, which is gentrification, which is really provocative, but is a lot for one movie to handle. But as you were talking to Adam, it reminded me, I do want to point folks to, and we can link to in the show notes, Angelica Bastien's review of Candyman, speaking of the polarized opinions, because she, a Chicagoan, she's been on the show a couple of times here, is really, I mean, she mm-hmm. went to town on this movie. And one of the things that she did not like about it was actually how it captured for her the flavor of Chicago. So I would definitely point folks that way as well after they've seen the movie and just kind of, you know, get get some of a sense of the, the wide range of ways people have responded to Candyman. Candyman and Shang-Chi are both currently playing in wide release if you see them like the more dutiful critic here on the show, Josh Larson, and have any thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week here on the show, we're planning to get to the latest from Paul Schrader. He's got a new film out, his first since 2017's First Reform, so good with Ethan Hawke. And here he is working with another incredible screen actor, Oscar Isaac, and we will close out our Wong Kar Wai marathon with our Wong Kar Wai awards. We've been getting a few more suggestions. We're probably going to stick with calling them the Tonys, whether legally we can or not, in honor of Tony Leung. And it's been great as we watch the last movie that we gave a full discussion to here on the show, the masterpiece In the Mood for Love. We've been getting a fair amount of feedback, Josh. There are people out there following along who are sending their thoughts on these films and how the marathon has opened their eyes to some of these films in particular that maybe they weren't as familiar with. And we would love to hear more of your feedback as we get into these awards and reflect on the marathon. So we haven't really talked about the categories yet, but inevitably we'll do a best supporting performer, a best lead performer, the best overall scene, but also the Wong Kar Wai moment or scene. And of course, best picture We would love to hear your picks. Feedback at filmspotting.net. 
Yeah, that's great to hear. I, I've been surprised. You know, you would think Wong Kar Wai is pretty well-traveled ground for, for a lot of our listeners, but I've seen some of those comments, too, on social media as well. Like, you know, maybe saw in the mood for love, but didn't ever go further than that and is taking this marathon as an opportunity to do so. So that's fantastic. It was sort of weird last week not having, we had gotten into a pattern of, I think it was like Sunday nights, we would watch, you know, the next Wong Kar Wai movie. And and we didn't have that this past week because we took a little bit of a break. Um, so I'm looking forward to at least giving 2046 a look, even though we mm-hmm. won't get into it in, in detail. And then we'll be in the sad post-Wong world, I guess. Well, I guess we could we just will. rewatch them all over again. <laughs> there you go. All right. Also, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get back to Massacre Theater. That's the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last massacre. Please, please. What is it? Next Thursday, the same time. No, I couldn't possibly. Please, I ask you most humbly. You miss your train. All right. Run. Goodbye. I'll be there. Thank you, my dear. So I think one of us must have said, Adam, that this was a pretty obvious scene. Yeah, um, I think it was me. But maybe that's not the case. I mean, the movie is, what, 70 years old, I believe, and perhaps one uh, not seen by a majority of listeners. We both agree, I think, that it's a masterpiece, though, mm-hmm. and that it should be seen by everyone. So if this uh, if this encourages, once we reveal the title of the film, people to do that, all the better. It is, as a tie-in to Wong Kar Wai, one of the great films about unrequited love. So there's a couple more clues there. We're <laughs> uh-huh. pointing people in the right direction. Um, hopefully we didn't like lead them directly to it. Yeah, Sam, our producer, who provides these erudite bullet points, you can tell that he is worried that not enough people got the massacre or that they have seen this movie. And that I totally understand. But we have gotten some praise for our performances. This from Joy Piedmont, New York City. She says, this is the perfect and kind of only pick you could have made for your In the Mood for Love episode, which feels like a spiritual successor to Redacted. And listen, you guys did admirable accent work and nearly matched the cut glass speedy cadence of Redacted and Redacted. Bravo. Now I'm going to go rewatch the movie for the millionth time and have a good cry. <laughs> well, I mean, I, thank you, Joy, but why didn't we make you cry? I don't understand why our rendition <laughs> oh, was oh, we made someone cry. <laughs> That's probably true. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 6th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it is part two of their musical variations pairing. Just started this episode this afternoon, actually. They are looking at Annette alongside Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart. And the crew did a valiant job of trying to defend in that first installment, the first episode, uh, One from the Heart, and found some things to admire about it, even though it is known generally as as a, a failure of Coppola's. And yeah, now they're in that discussion is really good as well. Joshua Rothko is actually joining them for this conversation, sitting in for Scott Tobias. He's alongside Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky for these episodes. You can get new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed and you get monthly bonus episodes. We did talk about Bond, James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me, and yes, we did devote some time to talking about 
Roger Moore and his prowess as Bond, Josh, with high praise for mm. his characterization of James Bond. And we got some high praise for this episode. I don't know what it is, Josh, about these bonus shows where maybe, I don't know, we're aware that significantly fewer tens of thousands of people are listening and uh -huh. we can just loosen up a little bit and have a little bit more of a silly good time, which seemed appropriate in particular for The Spy Who Loved Me. I mean, if you can't loosen up when talking about <laughs> this sort of movie, um, I don't know, you, you probably got a real problem. Yeah. And we heard from a listener, John McMillan, on Twitter, who said, man, at Larson on film may love the shows where he and film spotting swoon over masterpieces such as In the Mood for Love. But man, that first like 12 minutes of the Patreon Spy Who Loved Me episode was just straight giddiness and the energy was infectious. Great listen, John says. So, yes, if you've been thinking about it, whether you like Bond or not, if you've been thinking about taking the plunge and becoming a film spotting family member, it's straight giddiness and infectious energy that you'll get, I don't know if we can promise every monthly bonus episode, but every other? I mean, yeah, probably every other. I don't remember us being exactly like that over like Seven Samurai, for instance, but occasionally <laughs> Not as much happen. giddiness, no. no. But you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you so much, John. And I think we snagged someone else for the Patreon on Twitter, uh, Tanner Hoisington. He, he said, okay, time to pony up for the Patreon. More is not my favorite, but this is one of the best in the series. So there we go. Now, I just said that nice. so Tanner, if he was just kind of like floating that him? out there, now I've shamed him. You're committed, yeah, Tanner. I, I'm going to log into Patreon and see if he's <laughs> there. You go. If he's paid us or not. We do thank all of our film spotting family members who support us on Patreon. They also get the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. And we are excited about September trivia spotting number 14 coming up on Friday, September 17th at 7 p.m. Tickets have not gone on sale yet. They will probably come out in the next week or so. So if you are not yet a family member and you've heard a lot about how much fun trivia is and you want to get a chance to participate, you can sign up, become a family member, and get a chance to buy tickets. And I usually try to keep these a secret. I like the captains to be a surprise, especially when we add new captains into the mix, and this is where I will jinx it, Josh, as I always do. Yeah, you, when you've I done say this it. before. Why? Yeah, when don't I say do it, it, don't. I know, and then something happens, but here's what I'm going to say. As of about two weeks or so out from this event, I have a committed, right now, committed three new captains. I think we're going to have a fourth, and one of those captains, if not for this episode, probably October's, just might be the aforementioned Joshua Rothkopf. Oh, nice. That'll be fantastic. He's in. He's I, in he, for trivia spotting. I mean, based on the knowledge he's bringing to Next Picture Show, I think we're both going to lose again. I mean, yeah. this is the, yeah, well. the downside. <laughs> yes, says the guy who did win a trivia spotting. I've got one once. under my belt. Was it the second one? I think you won it the was, second one. It's been a dry spell. I'll just say that. Yeah. Meanwhile... I continue my string of second place finishes over the past three or four, but can't win the title. I'm the I'm the Carl Malone of trivia spotting, and I hope no one ever <laughs> says that to me again. Wow. <laughs> I like that reference. <laughs> I did it just for you, Josh. Thank you. Did I did I do it right? I, I mean, think that fits. It's accurate, right? Yeah, yeah. Never that fits. won a title. 
Uh, never won a title. Yeah, because he didn't get one when he jumped aboard the Lakers late, right? No, no I don't think that not. worked for him. No. Yeah. Okay. That's, All right. Thanks, Carl. That's enough NBA talk. <laughs> thanks again to all of our supporters on Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com slash filmspotting. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. Before we get back to our fall movie preview, we have poll results. A couple of weeks back, anticipating this top five, we posed a fall movie deathmatch. Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, coming in October, eligible for this top five, or PTA's Soggy Bottom, coming, it says here in November, but I know it's at least after Thanksgiving, whenever that movie is actually going to come out. So it's an Anderson versus Anderson deathmatch. You can only choose one, and the deathmatch rules apply. Whichever one you don't pick, it goes into the incinerator. You'll never get a chance to see it. So which one do you care about? Which one do you value more? Is it Wes or PTA, the French Dispatch, or Soggy Bottom? Josh, how did it come out? Our listeners are betraying me, as they did years ago when this happened yeah. before. They're sending the French Dispatch to the incinerator. It received 42% of the vote. Soggy Bottom got 58. So a little closer than that 2014 Mr. Anderson deathmatch, where Inherent Vice took out the Grand Budapest Hotel. I think it was 62 to 38 this time. French Dispatch getting 42% of the vote. So, you know, by 2027, yes. maybe maybe Wes Anderson will survive one of these. When they're, well, uh, probably later than that. When they're like, you know, in their 70s, still making making movies, he might overtake PTA. Yeah, really. Keenan Collett or Colette in London says, perhaps not the best argument, but the French Dispatch trailer left me apprehensive. And so I'm going with Soggy Bottom. Isn't apprehensive maybe what Wes Anderson's always going for with <laughs> his be. films. Based on the trailer, Dispatch looks like a distillation of Wes's techniques and tone rather than a story, as though Wes hasn't created a new film, but rather a cinematic word cloud generated from his previous output. I really, really hope the film proves me wrong, but at least I can rely on PTA to give me something fresh, nuanced, and original. Here's a vote for the French Dispatch from Neil Vita. How can you say no to that cast? The cast paired with the filmmaking and the witty dialogue make it my second most anticipated movie of the year right behind Dune. Here's Kendall Beachy, who says, I love Wes Anderson and his films are some of my favorites. I love PTA too, and his films are right there at the top. But there is more overlap in Wes's work while each of PTA's films are a unique world to themselves. Sorry, Wes, I can miss your movie as much as it would pain me. So some similar lines of thought there, at least with a couple of our voters who went in favor of PTA, that originality factor, the surprise factor, feeling like maybe this was an argument I think I kind of put forth when we first posed this question, that with PTA, you really do not know what you're going to get. And part of the reason we love Wes Anderson is maybe that we do get some of that comfort of seeing those familiar techniques and tropes and characters and members of his ensemble, even if overall you feel like it's hitting more familiar notes. Yeah, I love it when PTA shocks us and makes a stop-motion animated film. We were both big fans 
of Isle of Dogs. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. I like how I like how Wes is is being typecast is just churning out the same old stuff, and, and right. he's like actually mastered an entire different medium. But that's fine. No hard feelings, listeners. In fairness, even as much as you want to see the French Dispatch, and I am right there with you, actually. You can kind of see why people are saying that. They might be completely misguided and wrong, but you can see why they're saying it. Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I can. I, <laughs> I, and I made the argument. You couldn't watch two seconds of that trailer and go, oh, it's a Wes Anderson film? Sure. Okay. I guess if you're saying that, like if the, that's what I'm saying, the it just feels is, that familiar. Can you identify their style from a trailer? Okay. That's fair. Fair enough. Yeah, that's essentially what I'm saying. Thanks to everyone who voted in the poll and left comments. It's time for a new one. In a couple of weeks, we're planning to honor the 50th anniversary of the 1971 movie year with our top five films of 71. It's time for you to weigh in. Tell us simply, what is the best film of 1971? All right, here are your options. A Clockwork Orange, which we just recently discussed, Harold and Maude. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The French Connection. I think that's coming up for this show, right, Adam? We're going to have a discussion of The French Connection for our Top 5 of 71 show. Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we talked about that, but we'll see what happens. And then your other option is The Last Picture Show. Plenty of titles to consider for the other category. Maybe you want to go with A New Leaf, the Elaine May movie. Maybe Willy Wonka holds up for you not only as a child, but also as an adult. Fiddler on the Roof, Duel, THX 1138, Clute. I mean, this is why we've been revisiting 71 films. It's a really, really strong year. I'm going to call Sam out on another deeply flawed film spotting poll question, and not because any of the main choices he picked are wrong, or off base, but because in A Clockwork Orange, Harold and Maude, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The French Connection, and The Last Picture Show, I have no reason to actually offer my top five. It it has been done in the form of a poll question. I'm not sure I'm going to come up with anything that's off the beaten path there, Josh. Well, do we have anything else? No, we're not going to really revisit anything before then. So yeah, your, your work is done. Good for you. My work might be done. I... Haven't looked at our schedule in a little while. I think The French Connection is the movie we are pairing with this top five. I think I had hoped when this idea originally was floated by me that we would get to at least three films from 71. And unless I'm wrong, we've only talked about A Clockwork Orange. It would be fun to get to at least one other 50th anniversary picture before we do this top five. Beyond The French Connection, maybe Harold and Maude was the one I wanted to revisit. And I've been doing a little catching up on my own. Have seen Harold and Maude. Um, I watched Dirty Harry for the first time uh, last week. Spoiler, not going to make my top five. No. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I like Dirty Harry. I like it. I watched it last year. Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe we should talk about it. I mean, that thing is oh, evil. Uh, there's also <laughs> um, another movie I caught up with, Tulane Blacktop, for the first time. Yeah, that's good. Really good. So that one mm-hmm. was interesting. So, yeah, I've I've got a little more work to do, maybe, trying to juggle things, shuffle things around. And that French connection visit is going to bear in mind, you know, where it ends up on my top Mm -hmm. five, if it does at all. So we'll see. Okay. So I'm just slotting Josh in the column of people who misunderstood Dirty Harry. Let's let's move on. Let's move on. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment (laughs) at filmspotting.net. Let's get back to our fall movie preview. 
We'll see if we can agree on our final two questions about the fall movie season. What do you have at number two, Josh? Let's go back to some talk about the French Dispatch. For my number two question, I'm wondering, can Wes Anderson master the anthology film format? Now, my personal history with this format isn't great. I think of something as far back as uh, New York Stories in 1989. You know, this was kind of the movie that I wanted to see, not Turner and Hooch. But New York stories, <laughs> Scorsese, Coppola, Marty and Coppola, Woody Allen, Woody Allen. all yeah. in one, you know, contributing to one film. How about Four Rooms in 1995, Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Allison Anders, Alexander Rockwell. Then you've got something like Coffee and Cigarettes from 2003. That was all Jim Jarmusch, but each one, each vignette directed by him, loosely connected. Eros in 2004. Here's another Wong Kar Wai connection. He contributed a short film to that mm-hmm. alongside Steven Soderbergh and Michelangelo Antonioni. And you could throw, probably should throw the Ballad of Buster Scruggs from 2018 in there, right? The Coen Brothers Western sure. anthology. Parisia Tem. Is that one that counts? Did that, you see Parisia I don't think Tem? I saw that one. I, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that would count. Definitely. And you know, these ones I've listed, I've liked some of them fine. Um, but I've never, I haven't liked any of those as much as I've liked the individual feature films right. from the same directors. And I just, thinking about why is that, I just feel like I'm getting watered down or thinned out versions of their work. I mean, there's a reason filmmakers often start in shorts and then work their way towards a feature, right? And this sometimes feels like going backwards. I know there's such a thing as a perfect short story. And so there should be such a thing as a perfect short film, and they're probably out there, but my experience with this format hasn't been great. Maybe... I don't know, maybe like Sin City is the one that I connected with the most. But if I think about it, that's also the one, even more than Coffee and Cigarettes, which is all Jarmusch, that has the most aesthetic coherence. And as we've talked about with Wes Anderson, you know you're going to get that. You're going to get aesthetic coherence from him. And that's probably what you'll get with the French Dispatch, Wes only being Wes. So I am still hopeful And uh, we'll see when the French Dispatch comes out on October 22. Yes, we will definitely devote at least a review to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, a movie we've been anticipating for over a year now. My number two question of the fall is who will I empathize with more? Jessica Chastain, after damaging her skin for her art, wearing makeup while shooting the eyes of Tammy Faye, or her seemingly irredeemable televangelist character? Here's the synopsis. In the 1970s, Tammy Faye Baker and her husband Jim rise from humble beginnings to create the world's largest religious broadcasting network and theme park. I mean, you really can't have a religious broadcasting network without the theme park. No, no. Tammy Faye becomes legendary for her indelible eyelashes, her idiosyncratic singing, and her eagerness to embrace people from all walks of life. Josh, for our younger listeners... And we joke sometimes about our 90s kids who listen to film spotting, and now we're getting old enough that there are 2000s kids listening to film spotting. There's no way they have any sense of how big Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were in the 1980s. I mean, it was, you know, my awareness of them came through Saturday Night Live, like being parodied regularly. That's how big they were. Yes. I wasn't raised in a religious family. PTL wasn't appointment viewing, but I feel like it was on all the time. I saw that show constantly and they were everywhere. And yes, it was because they were also being parodied on shows like Saturday Night Live. But everybody in popular culture knew who Tammy Faye Baker was because of that voice, because of that makeup and 
those eyes. These eyes. I just want to love people. The devil's coming for me, Tammy. Can we talk about Satan later, Jim? Steve is a patient of AIDS. I can't look at this. You need to get her under control. I built you an empire. You built you an empire. Some people, they're just hurting so bad, and we just need to love them. I want to put my arm around you. And I want to put my arms around you, Tammy Faye. <laughs> Based on the trailer, the movie's directed by Michael Showalter, who also directed The Big Sick. He's really going for it. He is leaning into the campy absurdity of televangelism, of their personalities, everything that surrounded their rise to fame and fortune and the inevitable subsequent fall. Watching it today, I thought about I, Tanya. And I think, obviously, this is going for even more blatant comedy and dark humor than that film did. But it made me think of that film because here they're taking someone who has mostly been a non-entity in the zeitgeist recently. And whenever she is mentioned, it's as the butt of a joke. And they're telling her side of the story. And not for nothing, again, at least based on the trailer, the movie is going to suggest that poor Tammy Faye was driven to all of that excess by her quest to just earn her mother's pride and affection, which she could never get. So it's pushing her, and you heard this a little bit in that plot summary, it's pushing her a little bit as a rebel, as an iconoclast, someone who, despite all the ways we can laugh at her, challenged the lack of compassion and the right-wing politics exhibited by people like Jerry Falwell, who's played in the movie by Vincent D'Onofrio. I don't know why I'm skeptical. Maybe it's just because of my skepticism of televangelism, Josh. We'll see how much I'm buying of the eyes of Tammy Faye when it comes to theaters on September 17th. And for what it's worth, I will put an asterisk in my question. I did discover today that Jessica Chastain put out a follow-up tweet after the big story broke, Hollywood Reporter and everything, that she claims she's done irreparable damage to her skin from wearing makeup that took seven and a half hours every day to put on. She tweeted, the makeup artists for the Tammy Faye film are the best in the business. Don't believe clickbait headlines misinterpreting me. They just want you to open their links. My skin hasn't been ravaged by makeup, Jessica Chastain says. So my question is based on a fallacy, much like the religious lives and faith of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And we'll, we'll see what I think of the film. I am very relieved to hear that about Jessica Chastain's skin. And I think that the fact she's involved suggests, yes, there's got to be a, a couple of more layers than even the trailer suggests to the movie that she would take on a part like this. And I'm just fascinated because it does seem so, you know, a, a different direction from what at least I think of as a Jessica Chastain performance mm -hmm. or character. So yeah. we will see. All right. My number one question for the fall movie season, is there a way to wipe my memory of Dune before I see Dune? <laughs> Denis Villeneuve's take on the Frank Herbert sci-fi novel, it's been hugely anticipated by me and by others for so long now. I mean, to fill the gap, it seems, at least from Twitter, that a handful of people have started reading the book for the first time and and they're loving it. Uh, this is one this is one I haven't made time for to read in advance, Adam, but um, have seen some people doing that while they're waiting for Dune to come out. Now we covered the disastrous, and I know it has its fans too, but the disastrous <laughs> yes. attempt by David Lynch to make a movie from the material. I think it was last year in our eight from eighty four series. 
And it was fun to consider all the gonzo choices made there. We appreciated a few elements as well, some of Lynch's contributions. But now I really don't want any of that in my head when I watch the new Dune, because I really believe that Villeneuve deserves our sincere attention, not Camp Snickers with this movie. I mean, his Blade Runner 2049, that proved it to me. That was my number eight film of 2017. I think he knows what to do with um, heady sci-fi material, both in terms of story and plot and with the visuals. Absolutely. So I'm going to do my best to set Lynch's Dune aside. Really glad we saw it, that I finally scratched that off my blind mm-hmm. spotting list. But I'd kind of like to have a little bit of uh, amnesia there, at least while I'm watching this new Dune, which we are going to finally get on October 22. I just have one question. Yes. Will Sting be wearing a thong? I mean, now, come on. <laughs> I mean, I'm putting the image back now in your that's head. there. It's going to uh-huh. take me at least six weeks to purge that. <laughs> You're what's welcome. The, what's the timeline? I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> the Chalamet is in it. Can't that's wait right. for Dune. Yeah. Josh, great number one. Okay, well... I'm going a little bit more obscure. I'm going art house here to your mainstream pick of Dune. My number one question is, and this is a familiar formula for me in these previews. Usually I find a way to work a question in that follows these lines. Will Bergman Island be my favorite film of 21 or of all time? This is the. I think we need a Mia. recap at some point of all these. And see, I know, and they never they have and They've never made even my top ten. So talk about you're cursing too high movies. expectations. I am cursing these movies, but I have I have a really good feeling about this one. Josh Mia Hansen loves latest film has been on our radar since 2019. It was an honorable mention for a preview back in 2019. We're finally getting to see it, and if you want to know why. I would position this movie as potentially one of my favorite movies ever made. Here's David Ehrlich in IndieWire. I'm just going to read you a couple of phrases. A triple layer meta romance. A Zephyr calm story of loss, love, and artistic reclamation. I mean, he had me at triple layered meta romance. And then you go to the full on synopsis. A filmmaking couple's summer retreat to the idyllic island that inspired their hero Bergman blurs the lines between reality and fantasy in their own relationship. I'm not sure this movie actually exists. I think someone just took it out of my brain and said, oh, what movie will Adam give five stars to even if he doesn't see it? And you have the plot synopsis for Bergman Island. That is a high expectation. (laughs) (laughs) It is, right? Tim Roth and Vicky Kreps, both talented Actors are the couple, Mia Vasakovska, also in it. Mia Hansen-Love, the director herself, does appear in the movie, though I'm not sure in what capacity. And there's a part in the trailer where Krebs's character says something like, you realize we're going to sleep in the bed where they shot scenes from a marriage. <laughs> and then you get the punchline, which is, I think we're going to have to find another bed, right? And it almost strikes me, even though I don't think the movie is going for this at all. The trailer certainly doesn't suggest it. It's almost like a horror movie setup or some kind of psychological thriller. We know this house is supposedly haunted, but we'll brave it. That's all nonsense. We're a volatile married couple. Let's go to Bergman Island. <laughs> that'll be good for us. That'll that'll rekindle therapy. our love. Yeah, perfect couples therapy going to Bergman Island. And the island here in question is the island pharaoh where he made Through a Glass Darkly and Shame and I think Persona, built a studio 
on the island to film scenes from a marriage. I think all total made six features there, the TV series and two documentaries about the island itself. A lot of history here. And I think that gets at kind of what my true question about this movie is. Here's another bit from David Ehrlich in IndieWire. He says, while the iconic Swedish artist is amusingly inescapable in Bergman Island, his films are name-checked in almost every scene, many of which take place on the exact spots where they were shot or in the house where he wrote them, this supple puzzle box is more interested in him as a means to an end. So that's, that's what I really want to explore here and discover. As much as I'm geeking out as a Bergman fan, and a fan of movies about movies and meta movies. And I will say, I trust that Ehrlich is probably right. I trust Hanson Love as a filmmaker as well. So it's not really a question of can she, but how will she juggle all that name checking and the visual homages to make something that doesn't feel suffocated by the weight of Bergman and his legacy? October 15th is when we'll find out when it hits select theaters. I mean, how good to see Vicky Krupp's back on screen too. And and this sounds like, I think she's very good in old, the Shyamalan film, but it doesn't really give her what we know she can do based on Phantom Thread. This sounds like it'll be a little bit more up that alley. So can't wait to see it either. And I will just note that, of course, with my number two pick, I talked about Jessica Chastain. And next week on the show, we're planning to talk about the card counter with Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain reteaming as a married couple previously in a J.C. Chander film. Here they're back as a couple in the HBO version of Scenes from a Marriage that's coming out, I think, in October. And I love the original series, one discussed by Sam and me back on a way long forgotten episode of Film Spotting. To see those two actors wrestling with this material is something I am eager to see. So add that to my fall movie preview. Can't wait for scenes from a marriage on HBO. Those are our top five questions about the fall movie season. Josh, any titles you haven't gotten to any questions you want to throw out there? Uh, No leftover questions. I'm looking in my rankings of just what I'm most anticipating. Mm -hmm. I can give that real quick. So French Dispatch would be number one, followed by Dune, and then Titan, the Julia Ducarneau follow-up to Raw. Uh, Raw was a top 10 lister for me. Can't wait for that. The uh, Pichapong Rasakun film with Tilda Swinton, Memoria, that's coming out before Thanksgiving, I believe. And then my fifth most anticipated, and you know, I might have the dates wrong on some of these, but I think passing Rebecca Hall's adaptation of the Nella Larson novel. That one I did read not too long ago is fantastic. Um, I believe that is out shortly here starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. So yeah, Mm. just some of the titles I'm in general really looking forward to. Our producer Sam is going to give you a point for nailing the Wirasafkun, which I can't say nearly as well as you, obviously, but you, you did call it Titan and not Titan, which he busted my chops for the other day. Well, why didn't he put out a red alert? I know. He should have added it to I the mean, film spotting pronunciation we guide. We have a pronunciation guide. Okay. I think Teton, he wanted you to fail. Teton, he wanted you to look it is. bad. I think it's Going Teton. forward. All right. Good At least that's what, that's what Sam, noted French speaker, mm-hmm. says. Yes. All right. Of that Ducourneau film. I, alas, did not rank my titles, even though I definitely thought about it. And after the French Dispatch, which is clearly at number one. And yeah, I really, after revisiting some of these recent Daniel Craig Bond films, really do want to see No Time to Die. Of course, yes, I'm curious as well about Dune. Red Rocket might be the other title. We've talked about it a little bit here on the show because I think it played a fest or two, but the latest from Sean Baker 
definitely among my top five most anticipated films of the fall. We'd love to hear the movies you most can't wait to see, the movies you have questions about. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you, what is the best film of 1971? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend is Cinderella on Amazon with pop singer Camila Cabello in the title role. Speaking of pronunciations, I probably just got wrong. Pierce Brosnan, Minnie Driver, and James Corden also star. And I knew all of that thanks to that abomination of a flash mob oh that my goodness. went that- viral on social media last week. And I guess I'll say this about it. It made me aware that there's a Cinderella movie coming out, so mission accomplished. Yes, I was thinking about that. It clearly worked. (laughs) And also, right next to Sting Speedo, put James Corden's thrusting mouse crotch as something that's (laughs) now in my head that will take a while to get out. Now I know the title of my next trivia spotting team. Nobody else can take it. I call dibs. In wide release, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, highly recommended by Josh Larson, one of his top five favorite mcu movies does that put it in phase one or two or seven I'm so not sure. many phases in limited release wild indian this is the feature debut from native american filmmaker lyle mitchell corbine jr good reviews for that one coming out of sundance where it premiered next week we do plan to talk about the card counter the latest from paul schrader and we will get to our wong car Wai marathon awards that means you have one more week to catch up with those films and share your own picks for the tonys Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.